Our scripture reading this morning is from Philippians, the second chapter, verses 14 through 16. That's Philippians 2, 14 through 16. For those of you who may be following along in the Pew Bibles, it's on page 1043. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, again, we welcome you. It encourages us that you're here, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. We hope that everyone has had a good holiday. We hope that has been a blessing to you. We hope that we've all been reminded that gratitude is a much better way to live, and, con and contentment is a blessing. And we'll continue that thought even today from God's Word. I'm thankful that we live in a nation that causes us to at least stop and think about it as we celebrate a holiday together. But as we've said many times, this is something that ought to be the heart and the very attitude of us as Christians 24 hours a day, every day of our life, no matter what's going on around us in our life. I hope you enjoyed your list of 100 things. I'd encourage you to some way discipline yourself to be thankful. Uh, you may have noticed in the mail-out bulletin, I, I sent out a text and asked several of you to just tell me the unusual things on your list. And that was a, a neat little small list we put in the bulletin. But one of you texted me unsolicited one day and you just said, Hey, uh, is it okay to be thankful for the lady at Hardy's that makes the biscuits every morning? And... Uh, I thought that was very appropriate. We should be grateful for all things, and especially big things like that. Uh, and and uh, I, wanna, I wanna begin by sharing a little story with you. Uh, the fella, he's an older fella, he ate in the same diner every day and he ordered the soup du jour every day. And, um, and so one day the, the manager, as the fellow was paying, just asked him, said, hey, was your meal good? And he says, was good, but could have had a little more bread. So the next day, the waitress was about to deliver his plate and the, and the manager said, whoa, whoa, said, put four pieces of bread instead of two on his plate. And so feeling good about it, afterwards the manager asked him, said, hey, was your, was your meal good today? He said, was good, but could have had more bread. And so the next day, he thought, I'll, I'll solve this. He put eight slices of bread all the way around the bowl of soup. And, and when he asked him if it was good, the old fella said the same thing. So he thought, I'll, I'll fix him up tomorrow. So the next day he came, he had his bowl of soup sitting there and a plate of bread that was the whole loaf sliced. And so at the end of his meal, he said to him, how was, how was your meal today? And he said, what's well, good, but could have had more bread. So the manager went down to his bakery and he said, hey, he said, I want a custom order, a six foot loaf of bread. And so the next day, the manager, he had, he had sawed that loaf of bread in half and he'd buttered both halves of that bread and, and he served him his soup and those huge slices of bread. And that old fella ate every bit of it. And when he got done, the manager said, how was your meal today? 
And he says, was good, but I've noticed you're back to only giving two slices of bread. (laughs) Have you ever noticed that at least in America, we are real good at finding the negative. If you'll just listen, we're capable of complaining about almost anything. We will complain about waiting in a long grocery line while people around the world are really starving to death. We'll complain about the high prices of gas as we drive our couple of vehicles while much of the world is walking. We will complain about our service at a restaurant when we didn't even have to prepare the food and most of the time, it's pretty delicious. We'll complain about habits of our spouses We'll complain about the moods of our boyfriends or girlfriends. We'll complain about our in-laws. And if we're running out of things to complain about, we'll complain about the weather. We'll even complain about our sports teams. If you'll just listen, at least here in America, we're real good at complaining. Why? Why do we do so well at complaining? Well, we know that even though in America, we probably do it far more than some cultures, we weren't the ones that invented it. It's interesting to notice that in the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis, the third chapter, we have the sin of Adam and Eve. And when God was holding them accountable, you remember that Eve not only was blamed by Adam, but she was even used, if you will, as a complaint toward God, and even God himself was used as a complaint by the voice of Adam. This is what he said in Genesis, the third chapter, verse 12. Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Isn't that interesting? God, I tell you why I made that mistake. It's not my fault. It's your fault, God. You are the one that gave me this woman. And the combination of you and this woman, you've led me to sin. And obviously we know that God didn't buy into that, but we do see the first complaint that was filed against God that we know of in the word of God. And from then we see the children of Israel going through severe times of complaining and we see God dealing with them severely, even with the punishment of death. If you think about, fill in this blank. I'll be happy when. What goes in your blank there? I'll be happy when I have more money. How much more is it going to take? Because you probably said that back when you have less money than you have now. And if more was going to make you happy, why aren't you happy now? You'll be happy when you get a new job. You probably said that with the old job. And now you have the new job and you're not happy. Why? You're going to be new happy with you're going to be happy now with that new possession? Is it a new car? If it is a new car, why didn't that last new car make you happy and keep you happy? Or is it a new house? And if it is a new house, why didn't that last house make you happy? Or is it a new wardrobe or is it that there has to be a certain brand name? And if it is a certain brand name, why didn't that last brand name keep you happy? What is it really that'll fit in that blank that you'll say that'll do it? You give me that and that blank right there and I'll be content for the rest of my life. 
Isn't it interesting that in America we have that consumer mentality where we really believe that the practice of consumption will really bring fulfillment and we will have really arrived and, and there will be some kind of great feeling that will be lasting in our life and yet we know it's not true. I don't know if these statistics are true so I don't share them with you that they are but I share them with you because when I read them they made me think and see if it makes you think. 81% of us want more than we earn. 94% of us think we're too materialistic. Yet, 89% of us expect to have it all. Per capita, we are the richest, most affluent nation that we know of that's ever lived. But yet, we're also the most depressed most bored and discontented that we know of. There are 90 nations in the world today that each year, each person spends less on themselves than you and I spend on the garbage bags we put our garbage in. What is it doing to us? This consumer mentality of we've got to have more. What's well, destroying us? As a matter of fact, in the last recent years, each year, as many and many years more bankruptcies have been filed in America than college graduates have walked across the stage. The average American today has $8,000 of credit card debt. That's not counting all their other debt. That's just the things that they thought they had to have with money that they didn't have to buy it. What is it that we as America are missing out on? There's some kind of grandeur. There's some kind of rich, deep fulfillment. And we're trying to spend our way into finding it. We believe that some kind of materialistic end is going to arrive and that this journey that we traveled one day is going to be fulfilled in that one great final purchase and we will have arrived all of this materialism will have been worth it. But it's not adding up. It's not worth it. The United States is only 4.6 of the world's population, yet we use almost 40% of the world's resources. We are born consumers. And what I mean by that is by conditioning from the time we first learned to talk, a toddler usually hasn't been talking that long before they start to say regularly to their parents, I want that, I want that. And usually it's pointing at the television, at the marketing that is targeting the little ones. And it doesn't stop. That marketing reaches all ages to where we are consumer driven. We really believe from the time our mind is first being shaped here in America that we have to have things and we have to have more of these things. We're not going to know the fulfillment that we are designed to fulfill. If it is so fulfilling, why haven't we arrived yet? Why instead, when you compare us today to America in 1950, we are 10 times more depressed. We are 40 times more violent. We haven't reached a better point in all of this wealth and materialism that we enjoy. Isn't that interesting that we aren't happier? 
We were much happier statistically in the 50s than we are today, but yet apparently we enjoy a great amount of wealth that we didn't know in the 50s. There's no enjoyment to it when we don't realize why it's given and why our purpose on this earth is offered to us. And it's not just things. It also becomes our behavior. We have addictive behaviors. We become addictive to food. We become addicted to substances. Now in mind, Juliet, we don't want to drive to the next town to buy our liquor. Two to one, we voted just recently to bring the liquor stores to us. Why? We want what we want and we want it to be convenient. It's the consumer mentality that it has to be convenient. Pornography is probably the greatest addiction that is plaguing America today. Billions upon billions of dollars are spent just in America every year, more so than all of the professional sports combined. We are consumer driven in the mindset that it's about me. It's for me. We are sponges believing that everybody around us ought to be making us happy ought to be driven to fulfill our needs. And we believe that if we can just have more money, we can eat in four and five star restaurants and resorts where everybody waits on us. And that's why we want more money because then we will have arrived and everybody is there for us. And if, if they don't fulfill our needs and our consumer market, we get to demand it. You drive down the road and you see the bumper stickers on the back of buses and, and trucks. How's my driving? Why can you call that number? Because we're living in a consumer-driven environment. You don't like the company's driving, they wanna please you. Just let them know, they'll try to make it right. You don't like the way things are in the store, just walk up to the customer service. And if they're doing things right on the other side of the desk, they're gonna tell you as the customer, you're always right. You're going to go and you're going to pay enough money that everybody's going to act like you're a king or a queen. And I just want you to know, just because America creates that culture doesn't make it right. You're not all that because you have money. You don't have the right to deserve to be better than others. Because you live here instead of on the other side of the world. But America convinces us that we do have the right. After all, we're Americans. And we have the money. We have the control. And how do you take that and fit it into Christianity? And that's the problem. Christianity was never designed to fit Americans' mindset of consumerism into it. We have to decide, are we first Americans or are we first Christians? And if we're first Christians, what do we do with an environment that is so spoiled around us? What, we do, what do we do with a mindset that's so tarnished to what really is important? and so corrupted to the things that really matter the most. You see, when we think about America, we have a hard time knowing what to do with Philippians 2.14 that was part of the text this morning. 
Do all things without complaining and disputing. Do what? Do all things without complaining. In the Greek, you wouldn't be surprised at all. The complaining is just exactly what we think of today. It's the idea of looking negatively upon things and, and verbalizing and casting blame toward. It's, it's the idea of murmuring. That's the idea of complaining. But the disputing is interesting because a lot of time in our English, we think about disputing with someone, but really the way this is in the Greek and most oftentimes is used, even in the rest of the New Testament where it's used, it really is describing imaginations and thoughts of the heart. You see, the complaining is dealing with what comes out of our lips. And the word disputing in the Greek deals with where do those words come from? When our heart is soured, our thoughts are unrighteous and our words become murmurings and complainings. For example, when this very same word is used almost every other time, and I won't give you all of them, but let me just throw out three or four. In Matthew 15 and 19, the Lord said, for out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts and the evil thoughts there is the disputing or like when we go down to first Corinthians the third chapter and verse 20 where he's talking about when men and women become arrogant and thinking their wisdom is greater than God's wisdom and he talks about that in this setting and he says and again the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile and so see there he's saying okay they're arrogant they think their thoughts are so great and God says those are disputings those are evil thoughts that you're having or like in 1 Timothy 2 and 8 when he says, Therefore men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In other words, God does not want us to pray with doubt. What's doubt? It's the thought inside where our faith is wavering. And he says, that's the disputing. Don't pray with those thoughts that are lacking faith. Or the last one we'll mention is James 2 and 4. Remember where they were showing prejudice? They were, they were being good to the wealthy man that came into the assembly and they weren't being good to the poor man that came into the assembly. And he says, have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts and the evil thoughts there is the disputing you see what what Paul is saying here is he's saying look these words that you're speaking are connected to a thought process that is that is distorted and that it's wrong because it's connected to a heart that isn't what it ought to be and so what I'd like for us to do over the next few minutes of this lesson is drop back and look at what led us up to this point. We're reading here in Philippians 2 and verse 14. Let's look at some of the verses out of Philippians 1 and Philippians 2 that led to this point. And when I mention this verse again, the lesson will be over. And so let's see what is it that leads to this point of complaining. Because if we see how Paul connects it in these two chapters, we'll really get to the heart of it. In other words, God isn't saying, put a rubber band around and every time you start to complain, flip yourself with the rubber band so it reminds you to discipline your tongue. God's saying, no, this is far more than just an issue of disciplining the tongue. Although it might be somewhat that, there's something far deeper. It's the depth of the heart that Paul is dealing with here. So let's go to Philippians, the first chapter, and let's look at some things beginning at Philippians, the first chapter. Let's look at verse 12. Paul says, there are some things that I want you to know. And here's what he says in Philippians 1 and 12. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. And if, if you have your Bible open there, notice verse 13 says, so that it has been evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. 
Now, notice what he's saying here. He's writing to the people of Philippi, which is a healthy congregation. They're doing well spiritually. He's writing to them from prison. And you can imagine, they're probably having questions. Where's God? If God is so great and so powerful, why, why is he leaving our beloved in prison? Maybe they even feared for themselves. What if this starts happening to us? Are we one day going to be in prison? And notice Paul didn't just say I'm in prison. He said, I'm in prison in chains. But notice, Paul says, I don't want you to be concerned about this. What we've all wanted has happened. Look at the end again there, verse 12. This has happened for the furtherance of the gospel. Could you do that? Could you be put into prison and you don't have a right to be there? They don't have a right to hold you, in other words. They're, they shouldn't be holding you. You haven't done anything wrong, but yet you write a letter about it and you say, hey, if you're concerned about me being in prison, I just don't want you to be concerned anymore because the gospel is being furthered. What's at the heart of someone who can say, don't complain. Don't have any disputing thoughts in your heart. How can he say that? He can say it because all Paul wanted in his life was to make sure that the gospel is further. Do you recognize this is good news? Hear that afresh. Think about how powerful that is. This is good news. What if God can use something in our life, whether it's positive or negative, what if God can use it to further the gospel? Would our response be, great. I'm glad that negative thing happened because if the gospel is furthered, that's all that I wanted. Well, he doesn't just stop there with the furthering of the gospel. Read down in verse 20. In just a moment, we're going to read 21 and following. But in 20, he described that in his life or in his death, now think about this, in his life or in his death, he wants Christ to be magnified. And so with that in mind, he says in 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard pressed. In other words, he's saying, and he's using an expression that we today would say I'm between a rock and a hard place. I'm hard pressed between the two. Having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. So back up in verse 12 and verse 13, he says, listen, don't feel sorry for me in prison. The gospel's being furthered. And you say, Paul, are you serious? And he says, yes. All I want to do is I want to use my life or my death to magnify Christ. And it doesn't matter which one. He says, as a matter of fact, if I had my choice, I'd have a hard time telling you which one I want right now because I want to go and be with Christ. But I know that if I stay, I can do more to help others learn about Christ. Christ will be magnified. Paul's mindset was not consumption. What can you do for me? What can the church do for me? What can the nation that I'm a part of do for me? What can others do for me? Now, I realize that we all desperately need God. But Paul's mindset wasn't simply, what can God do for me? He had a mindset that no doubt appreciated all that God could do. But his mindset is, how can I be used to magnify Christ? How can I be used to further the gospel? Now notice, he answers this by saying it's a mindset. I can further the gospel. I can magnify Christ if I have the right mindset. Look at verse 27, chapter 1, verse 27. 
Only let your conduct, that's your life, your behavior, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's a huge phrase. Do you live in such a way that your life is worthy of the gospel? I think sometimes we take the good news of Jesus so much for granted that it's almost like we don't owe it anything. We just kind of toss it around like, yeah, this is a book I live by. No, really, is this a book you live by? Do you live a life worthy of the gospel? And so he says, okay, I want a conduct. I want a life that's worthy of the gospel. So what's it going to uh, mean to Paul? What's he going to have to do? So he says that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit. Here it is. With one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. He says, I want you all to have one mind. And of course, when we go to Philippians, the second chapter down to verse five, we see that that one mind on the next slide is Jesus Christ's mind. Notice that, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So we say, well, what was the mind that was in Christ Jesus? It led Jesus to live a life like is described in verse eight and being found in the appearance as a man, this is talking about he left heaven and came to this earth, found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. So now let's think about this for just a moment and then I wanna fill in just a few things between verse 27, the first chapter down to the second chapter, verse five and eight. But let's think about this. Paul, how do you live the life you live? Everything's for the furtherance of the gospel. Not a consumer, a giver, a furtherance of the gospel. Why, Paul? I just wanna make sure Christ is magnified. Paul, how do you have that? That's awesome. I wish I could do that. I get to thinking too much about me. And Paul says, you have to have a mind of Christ. Think like Christ would think. Stand in the faith and think like Christ. Okay, how would that be? And over the next about five verses coming out of the first chapter and in the second chapter, he's gonna talk about things like, don't have selfish ambition. Consider others greater than yourself. Have interest in others' interest. And most of us would say, Paul, I can do pretty good when I'm consciously thinking that, but it's hard to live that day in and day out. And he would say, that's where we have to change our whole mindset. In verse five, second chapter, we have to have a mind like Christ. Well, what's Christ's mind? He came to this earth. He could have come as a king for everybody to serve him. Consumer mentality. I'm the king of heavens. Everybody wait on me. But instead, he came as a spiritual king. He did. But we didn't even recognize him as a king because we expect to see kings on thrones and everybody serving them. And he came as a spiritual king that served mankind. And here he emphasizes humility and obedience. How do we have a mindset that would be what God wants us to be? We have to have a humble, obedient spirit that says, God, it's all about you. This word that I humbly obey, I want it to be exalted. This God whom I humbly serve, I want you to be magnified. I want my mind to think like Jesus thinks. And what's that going to lead to? Let's look at verse 12 and 13 that leads up to the verses where we'll end. Look at 12 and 13. Therefore, we're still in Philippians 2 now. Therefore, so therefore links all that he has been teaching up to this point. My beloved, he loves the people at Philippi dearly. As you have always obeyed. Now keep in mind, he is writing to people who are already saved. 
And he says, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure or for his good will. And so here he talks about this relationship that we have with God that is a continual working out our salvation. Now, please don't misunderstand this. I'm not suggesting to you that God teaches, well, we're saved this moment and then we're lost this moment and then we're saved this moment and we go throughout one day and we're saved and lost 10 times. Nothing like that. As a matter of fact, 1 John, the first chapter and verse 7 teaches us that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, that the blood of his son Jesus cleanses us from all of our sins. The problem is when we don't work out our fear, work out our salvation with fear and trembling, when we're not concerned about the gospel and humility and obedience, we're not concerned about exalting Christ and being humble to him, that's when we'll throw up our hands and we'll walk away from the Lord. And when we walk away from the Lord, we have stopped then working out our own salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, God has done his part, but we have to do our part. God's not gonna come down and make any of us further the gospel today. He's not going to make any of us put Christ first. We've got to decide. I want to have a mind that I get up today and I put Christ first. I want the gospel to be further. And so all of these resources that God has given me living here in America, what can I do to use them to further the gospel? What can I do to use those to exalt Christ. Now I'd like for you to notice at the end of verse 13 there, he said that he works in us to both to will and to do his good will. Isn't it interesting that God is not only saying, I want you to do my will. He says, I want you to want to do my will. I want you to will. In other words, I want you to want to do my will and I want you to do my will. And so he said, okay, Lord, I want to do your good pleasure. What is it that you want me to do? Now, if this sermon was going to just go on and on, even though some of you may think it is, it's not really. If it was going to go on and on, we would look at the next three verses. He's going to tell us that this is God's good pleasure. Don't complain and dispute. Number two, he's going to urge coming in to verse 15, live a life that's blameless and harmless. And number three in verse 16, hold fast to the word of life. That's what he calls the scriptures the word of life. But let's just stop with that first one. Now let's put this all in order as we bring this to a close. God, I want your gospel to be furthered. I believe that's the most important cause that I have on this earth. I want to exalt Christ, whether it's in my life or my death, use me. The only way I can have that attitude is a mind that's like Christ. Others are more important than me. I truly want to exalt you, God. So Lord, what is your will? What is your good pleasure? And he says, don't complain. Don't have disputing going on within your being. How powerful is that? What difference does it make? You see, the complaining is not just an issue 
of the wrong words coming out of our mouth. It's an issue of the wrong heart that's feeding the thoughts, that's feeding those words. It's so easy for us to bring a consumer mentality to the Lord. Oh, I want to find a church that has more singles. I want to find a church that has more married couples. I want to find a church that has more kids. I want to find a church that has more older people, more younger people. I want to find a church where, where the sermons are, are shorter and the singing is longer. I want to find a church where the singing is shorter and the sermons are longer. I want to find a church and we get in a, into a shopping mentality where, where it's kind of like walking up to the customer service desk and saying, I've got a problem and I want you to fix it. Do you realize right now we have in the life of this church two age demographics that if every one of them came to Bible class, we'd have to find a room four times the size that they're in right now. And when you listen to those individuals where only a fourth of them are in class and you, you listen to why, they'll usually say, there's not a class that I enjoy. Why don't you take that down to the customer service desk at Target and see if they can work that out for you? Because I guarantee you God's not going to accept it. Our American culture that's based on consumerism is not going to fly with God. You were saved to further the gospel, not to act like it doesn't exist and give me what I want. You were saved to exalt Christ and become a servant of Christ, not, I tell you what, if you can get all your P's and Q's in a row and make me happy, I might come back next Sunday. And if not, I won't be. With that attitude, we'll always be at home in America. But you won't in the kingdom. Because the kingdom, the kingdom is about saying, Lord, it's not about me. It's about what can I do for you. And when we get that right, we generally don't complain. Because complaints aren't connected to righteous hearts. But we struggle. In part, because we're human. But magnified, because we're Americans. We've been taught that since the time we could think. The other day I was listening to a sports show on talk radio. And I was so glad that I heard this because like many of you, I've enjoyed following this story a little bit. And you remember it's the Goodlettsville All-Star team, the Little League All-Star team that, that played in the World Series recently. And their coach was on. Coach Joey Hale, and he was talking about how it was a life-changing event and it wasn't just because of the baseball. It's changed so many of their lives that as a matter of fact, they're collecting money and raising money right now for the ones in the team that want to, they're gonna to fly to Uganda. And the reason they're going to Uganda is because while they were in the World Series, and you remember the Goodlettsville team actually played in the World Series, but while they were going through the playoffs, they were staying in the hotel, and one of the same groups staying in their hotel was a group from Uganda. 
And so these young men became good friends with several of the young men from Goodlettsville. And, and Jason Brown was a center fielder from Goodlettsville that, that one of the young men from Uganda said, he's my best friend in the world. And they got so close, they would hang out in the hotel and, and, and they, would, they would hang out in the game room. And so after they got to know each other real well, this young man from Uganda said, can I ask you a question? And you promise me you won't get mad at me. And he said, sure. Why do Americans complain so much? I mean, you have everything. Why do you complain? And the little league player just stared at him. Because like you and I, he didn't have a good answer. You see, most of those boys, they learned to play baseball without gloves, without bats, and without shoes. Most of them still live in houses that has no electricity and no running water. And we complain about the long lines in the grocery store, the high price of gas, and how our service is bad at a restaurant, and how the five-star waiter didn't get it right. And it may be a shock to you and I that the rest of the world doesn't understand that. I suggest to you more importantly this morning, God doesn't understand that. And the problem is we're on a mission that has no fulfillment. As long as we really believe that one day our consumer mentality is going to arrive at a destination where we say, I'm fulfilled. Now I have everything that I want. It's not going to be through give me. It's only going to be found through exalt him. If my passion for this lesson has been miscommunicated to you that I think I have this all together, I just want you to know I don't. I struggle with this. But I hope that you and I will give careful and diligent consideration in our life that we'll truly figure out how to use the blessings that God has given us. This morning, if you're ready to move closer to the Lord and you're ready to be immersed into Christ, you're ready to be restored, if there's anything that we can do to help or encourage you, we'd love to do so. 